And please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. In last week's message, we began speaking particularly about the life that we could have, a life worth living. The fact that the whole reason why we really get up in the morning, the foundational purpose for our life, we get up and we know that God has a purpose for us. There's so many in this life that don't have purpose or they seek to interject some purpose. They, they, they get up for some reason and then they end up questioning, why am I even getting up in the morning? I get up, I go to work, I come home, I live for the weekends and then when the weekend's here, I live for the next weekend and then I live for the vacation and then I live for retirement and, 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 then, and then you die. My wife gave me a look like, oh, that's not very encouraging. But it's not. Except that we have more, don't we? Through Christ, we have more meaning. We have something different. We have something deeper. We have something eternal. We don't live for now. We don't live for things. We don't live for the next step. We live for Christ today, knowing what's coming tomorrow. And we're going to build upon that idea this morning. Yes, we, we, we live to serve Him, but there is something coming. There is something greater. We do have something on the horizon, something to look forward to if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you've been saved by grace, if you know that you're on your way to heaven, you have something, not just today, not just a purpose for today, but you have something coming. Something great. And Paul's going to teach us a part of what that greatness is today in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35-50. through 50. You see the title of the message, We Shall Be Like Him. Like who? We'll talk about it together. Look with me. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage together. I invite you to, to follow along as I read. Beginning in verse 35, we'll read through verse 50. Paul says, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain, that it may, or it may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, and another, kind, uh, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not the first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, 
such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. We've got a lot of work to do this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So we're just going to jump right in. Verse 35 says this, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? You know, there are various debates in Christianity about what the resurrection will look like, about what we will look like in the resurrection. And these same debates were found in Corinth. Some men asked, how are the dead going to be raised up? With what body are they going to be raised? And, and the reason for this question uh, is, is somewhat logical. I mean, have you ever thought about it? A person dies, perhaps they're buried, perhaps they're cremated, uh, whatever way they are dealt with, for lack of a, a better term, um, they're gone. What body are they going to rise into? In fact, this used to be a major religious issue. It's not so much an issue anymore, but, but back in, in the decades, uh, generations past, cremation was seen as a very unchristian thing. You, you didn't get cremated, and the reason why was because they felt as though if you burned your body, then you didn't have a body, that, that it would somehow affect the resurrection. That it would somehow affect the ability for your body to be resurrected because you burned it into ash and then scattered those ashes. And so this has been a debate in the early church. But you know, even if a person is buried, they deteriorate, right? It's not like their body stays well preserved in the ground. Um, they, there's uh, things, there's de- decomposing processes. I guess the, the Sunday after Halloween, we, 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 we talk about this. And, and you know, there's, there's, it comes down to a skeleton. And then that even decomposes and ends up disappearing. Unless it fossilizes, of course. So people are troubled by this. They were in Corinth. And the same issues were floating around in the early church and then even, even up to today. But notice Paul's response to this issue about the body. What body will it be? How will it happen? Uh, logistically, Paul, this, this whole bodily resurrection thing just doesn't make sense. And his response in verse 36 was this. Thou fool. Thou fool. That which thou sowest is not quick, and except it die. Paul, Paul doesn't really beat around the bush any here, does he? He plainly states that such thinking, such musings, such difficulties are indications of foolish or immature Christian thinking. Spiritual immaturity, improper focus upon immaterial elements of Bible teaching. You know, Christians are pretty good at this. We talked about this a little bit last Sunday night. The fact that Christians are really good at trying to read between the lines in the Bible, but they're not all that good at reading what the lines actually say. We're so busy trying to infer things from what the Bible says that we forget to obey what the Bible says itself. And there are a lot of immaterial, unnecessary, things that just plain don't matter that Christians find the time and effort to think about, to write books about, to fight over, to split churches over. It's foolish to wonder what our resurrected bodies will look at like. That's what Paul says. It's foolish for us to, to try to spend time and effort in our Christian lives debating about whether or not a cremated body can be resurrected. Is it, is it any more of a miracle for a cremated body to be resurrected than for a thousand-year-old decomposed body to be resurrected? Not really. It's the same God that, that does these tremendous miracles. It, it's... it's not really any harder. It's, it's just 
it's not profitable for us to spend time worrying about these things. Other ways that Christians do this, you know, the, the old adage, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Don't know if that's ever split a church, but, but you know, it really doesn't matter, does it? It's foolish for us to wonder if God can create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift, right? Well, God's all-powerful, and yet God, if God can... Circular reasoning, all those sorts of things, these things are just kind of foolish, are they not? It's foolish for us to wonder if Adam had a belly button. Ever thought about that? Now, you can think about it. By all means, feel free to think about it, but don't write a book about it. Don't spend hours studying it. Yeah, he wasn't born. He probably never had an umbilical cord, did he? I don't know if he had a belly button. It's kind of silly. I heard This was one I heard in Christian college. All of those pastoral majors sitting around trying to pretend like they're godly. And... One guy pipes up, he says, so in order to be saved, the Bible says you have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. So if you can't speak, can you be saved? See, that's a silly question. That's a silly question, isn't it? We know that salvation is a heart issue. The confession is a visual or audible manifestation of what is in your heart. So to say that a person can't speak, therefore he can't be saved, these are silly things. And, and, and it's not necessarily that, that you're, you're sinful if you're thinking about these things, but what it reflects is that there is an element of spiritual immaturity in the heart of the person that's taking the time and the effort to focus on things that really don't matter. To focus on things that are really immaterial to anything. Let's focus upon what the scriptures tell us to focus on. Let's keep the major things major and the minor things minor. Again, if you've had these questions, I'm not trying to tell you that you aren't a good Christian or anything of the sort. It's simply Paul saying, these things are not worthy of your time. Let's focus on things that matter, things like loving one another, things like obeying God's commands, things like remaining unspotted from the world. After all, that's what James tells us true religion is. James 1.27, he said, true, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, that's to love one another, and to keep himself unspotted from the world, that's to love God. Love one another, love God. It's the same qualifications we see in First John. It's the same qualifications we see Jesus speak of. Right? The two great commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and thy might, and the second like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. It's the same thing that's reflected in the Ten Commandments. To love God and to love one another. Let's focus on the, the let's major on the minor, majors and minor on the minor. So so Paul calls them fools. He says that that they're not really studying things that are profitable, fighting over things that are profitable, contending over things that are worthy of their time. Now, likewise, when others start doing this, family, friends, other church folk when they begin to major on the minors, this isn't the opportunity for you to really rebuke them and yell at them and such. I wouldn't call them a fool. But this is a good teachable moment for you to remind folks that we need to focus on the major things and maybe not so much focus on these minor things. Paul's response to their spiritually immature questions about the nature of the resurrected body will consume much of our time today. Paul did take the time to respond. To, to, he used this as a teachable moment, just like you should. 
when these moments come about. And he begins by giving what we might say is a universal concept. A concept that God shows in creation in order to teach us a little bit of of something about the resurrection itself. And he talks first then about a seed here in verse 36. He says, That which sowest, to, to sow a seed, to plant a seed in the ground, is not quickened except it die. The seed can't sprout until it is first removed from its source of life until it is first removed from its original source. Jesus taught the same lesson in John 12. You might have a cross-reference in your Bible. If you don't, you probably should put one. John 12, verses 24 and 25, Jesus teaching, He says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. So Jesus gave an illustration of a, a corn of wheat, a kernel of wheat, a, 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 a seed. As wheat grows, its stalks are, are a lush and a beautiful green. These stalks have life in and of themselves. They have roots. They, 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 are, they are soaking in the water. They are soaking in the sun. They're green. They're alive. As the season progresses, those stalks of wheat die. When they die, they turn a golden yellow or a brown. And the tops of the stalks, which had once been very strong and very erect, they begin to stoop to the ground. They get very top-heavy. Each wheat stalk has many grains of wheat upon it, and the top is the heaviest part. Now, once dead and drooping, the grains of wheat begin to fall off the stalk and they land upon the ground, unless it's harvested, of course, but in the natural way it's done, they fall onto the ground. The stalk is dead. The grain is dead. And yet, as those grains are worked into the earth by rain and wind, an amazing thing begins to happen. Those, each individual grain begins to sprout life. And a whole stalk of grain grows from the one seed. And so one stalk of wheat, having died, drops its grain, may produce many, many more stalks and many, much more grain. So in its life, the stalk of wheat was sustained and it was itself alone. That one seed was one grain of wheat. And yet that grain going into the ground not only produces an entire stalk of wheat, but produces far more of itself, a, a, a greater reproduction, um, more life, uh, abundant life, a greater life than what went into the ground comes back out. And it's this illustration that, that Jesus used, and, and then by extension Paul is using, to describe, well, Jesus used it to describe salvation, spiritual life, and Paul is using it now to describe our physical, bodily resurrection. There cannot be a resurrection until there is first a death. Thus, like the the death of the seed and its removal from its first source of life, that being the stalk, are essential to a greater and more abundant life in the future, so too with our own death, 
for we who are in Christ, for we who are saved, it gives way to something far greater, something more abundant. But what does it mean? We keep saying it gives way to something greater, something more. Is there, is there any more insight, Pastor, on what this more is? A little bit. Not a whole lot, but a little bit. Continuing in verse 37, Paul says, And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. Paul says in verse 37 that the thing which goes into the ground or the thing which goes into the fire in, in cremation um, or whatever, however it happens, the body that dies is not the body that will come back. It's different. It's, 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 a, it's of different character. It's of different stuff. This is important, folks. The body that dies is likened by Paul to bare grain, one little piece of grain, only the seed itself. When the seed is planted... In the ground, it doesn't spring to life as a seed, does it? It will have seeds on it, but, but that's not what you see. When, when an apple seed goes into the ground, you're not going to see an apple pop up out of the ground. A tree is going to grow. That is what will have come from that seed. There's nothing where, there, there's no plant uh, I'm aware of where the seed that goes into the ground pops up as itself. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. It's, it's entirely different in character, in nature. It, it springs up as the most complete embodiment of what that plant is. If I put a corn kernel into the ground, it springs up with stalks, not just as one kernel, but hundreds. It goes into the ground dead and alone, but it comes back alive and numerous. And this is the idea. Paul says it, it goes into the ground as a bare, as a lone grain, but it comes out as something different. We will be resurrected into something different. Look at verse 38. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. According to God's good will and God's good pleasure, each seed is given a different body according to its nature. It doesn't take a bunch of seeds to make one stalk of corn or one watermelon or whatever. It takes one seed and if it grows it becomes the fullest manifestation, a full body. So as you think of this seed analogy, you can perhaps begin to understand a little bit of the dynamic of death and then a bodily resurrection. We are going to die. We are going to be put in the ground. But what will be resurrected when we come to life again and we receive a new body, it will not necessarily be like in nature our old body. Now, there's lots of questions and we'll, we'll address them at the end. Will we look the same? All those things. We'll, we'll address them. But um, we're beginning to get this idea here. Paul's going to continue to make this clear in verses 39 through 41. So verse 39, Paul says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. Now Paul starts to talk about the, the, the dynamics of the physical body itself. When we talk about the composition of various animals, we can't help but see that their bodies are composed differently. The meat of a fish is very different from the meat of a cow. I've never been eating fish and asked my wife, is this, is this steak? That, that, that has never happened to me. 
I, uh, maybe eating some wild game and doesn't taste too gamey, and you say, "Wow, you know, is this is this elk or?" But but as far as what Paul the the illustration Paul is giving here, I've I've never mixed one up for another. I've never been eating turkey and wondered if this was salmon. They're pretty distinct. They taste different. They have different textures. They have different consistencies. They look different. If you go to a butcher shop and you say, hey, I'd like some meat. And they say, well, what kind? Well, just, just, just give me some meat. They're going to need more information, right? There's, there's more than one type of meat. You can't just say, I'd like some meat. But it's not just composition. It's also, we might say, glory. Things which humans and animals can do. Way that they're made up. Their, their particular beauty. Paul continues in verse 40. He says there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of a terrestrial is another. We all have different abilities, animals and, and humans. Uh, eagles have tremendous vision. Dogs have an amazing sense of smell. Even among the inanimate world, there is a particular and a unique beauty based upon what you're looking at. When I was um, in college, went to college in Florida, and met my wife there, I, I went to college thinking that really you couldn't top the Rocky Mountains, and that any other mountains were just um, kind of inadequate. And so, of course, my wife, growing up in Atlanta, right there at the bottom of the Appalachian Mountains, she, she grew up with a, a fondness in her heart for the Appalachian Mountains, and I, growing up in Colorado, grew up with that fondness in my heart for the Rocky Mountains. And my wife and I get married, and I still give her all sorts of hard times about the Appalachian Mountains, until we decided to go hike them. And I spent several days on the trails in the Appalachian Mountains, and and uh, looking at them and, and enjoying their beauty and realizing something. The Appalachian Mountains are a different beauty than the Rockies. Rockies are, are very rocky. Uh, you're above treeline a lot of times. You can see for miles. Uh, they're very tall. The Appalachians aren't as tall. They're very lush. You, you get up at the top of a hill in, in a bald and you can see but what you're seeing is green. And the Rockies, that's not necessarily... You're seeing green valleys and then you're seeing uh, very rocky, rocky tops. And it's not that the Appalachians were ugly where the Rockies were beautiful. It's that they each had their own beauty, their own glory, right? A, a very different glory. A very different uh, set of features that commend them. Some people like cornfields. I don't understand it, but they do. They'll be driving through Iowa and Nebraska and that, 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 will, be, that will be it. That's, that's, that's what they love. It's a, it has a beauty to them. It has a beauty of its own, I agree. But I prefer other beauties. Some people love the rolling hills of Kentucky. That's, that's beauty to them is those green rolling hills, pastures. I remember I drive home from Pensacola to, to Colorado every year and you hit that Arkansas-Texas line and it's like all of a sudden you go from trees to deserts. And I felt like I could finally breathe. There were always trees on either side. I always felt constricted. And you get out to the west and it's like, ah, and it was beautiful to me. It was beautiful. Everyone else was like, look, there's nothing out here. This is ugly. This is boring. 
And I'd say it's beautiful. And so there, there's a beauty. The Oregon coast has that lush green beauty. Rolling hills of Kentucky, white sand beaches in Pensacola, Rocky Mountains, Appalachian Mountains, the beautiful uh, trees that we have around here, especially in the fall. Uh, hard to beat uh, the, the, the tremendous colors that we get around here in the fall. And that's what Paul's saying. There's a beauty to the, our bodies, is there not? And some of us are more beautiful than others, but there's a beauty. There's a beauty to how we're composed. Our eyes, have you ever considered how incredibly intricate the eye is? How, how, how many things must be working right for our eyes to work right? It's incredible. Our hearing, the vibrating of bones inside the inner ear that somehow allows us to distinguish sounds and to communicate with one another. The fact that my hands are moving right now simply because some electrical impulses in my brains aren't telling it to. And we begin to really appreciate this when it starts to shut down, right? The thicker our glasses get, the need for hearing aids, uh, the, the need to perhaps have a cane or a walker because the back or the legs aren't doing what they or the knees aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And as we start to lose these privileges, we start to realize exactly how incredibly our bodies are made. And it is a glorious thing. And what Paul is trying to say is that the glory of the resurrected body will not be the same as the glory of the mortal body. We're, 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 we should not be comparing them as if they're apples to apples here. We can't look at us today and say, wow, what a, a glorious thing it will be to have a resurrected body because it's going to be different. It's going to be glorious, but it's going to be a different glory. Verse 41, he says, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. The moon has a glory of its own. It reflects light. The sun is warm and it has a glory. The moon can't, can't say that, can it? The moon isn't exactly, it doesn't give us a lot of heat. The sun does. And yet they both have a glory of their own. The stars have a beauty of their own. And so Paul is saying animals with different types of meat, different strengths, different skills, land, celestial bodies, they all have a glory of their own. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Here it is. This is where, where he links it. There will be an entirely different, entirely distinct glory between your current body and your resurrected body. It won't just be your current body corrupted, um, destructible, raised back to life. That's what happened when Elijah raised the widow's son. That's what happened when Jesus rose Lazarus. Corrupted bodies came back to life and they were still corruptible and they, they died again. They, they, they eventually wore out. That won't be what we're talking about. When we experience this resurrection, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, for we who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we will be changed from a body of corruption to a body of immortality and incorruptibility. If I may put it this way, we go from fish to steak. We go from moon to sun. The glory of our body will not just be enhanced, it will be completely transformed to something new. First time I studied this, my wife and I were courting. And um, I was learning about the, the, the amazing doctrine of the resurrection 
uh, in, in detail through 1 Corinthians 5. And, and I, I, of course, was a computer science major in college, one of my majors. And so I, I think in, in tech ideas, and I, I, told, I explained it this way. I said, it's not just going to be popping open the case on your computer and adding new components. It's not just going to be an upgrade. It's going to be putting that computer to rest and buying a whole new one. Everything's new, entirely different. It will be a, a completely new, different glory, our resurrected bodies. Verse 43, Paul continues to describe this. He says, It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Isn't that exciting? You won't just receive a healthy current body, as we would think of it. It's not just that the pain will be gone or that your memory will be better. There will be a transformation, a glory, a strength, an ability that we cannot understand, that we cannot fathom. We don't, we don't know what these bodies will be capable of. But I can guarantee you this, it won't just be everything you were capable of at 16 or 18 or 20. It won't just be you getting to live like you're perpetually young. It'll be something entirely different. It'll be something better. It'll be a glory that you can't comprehend. We often look, th- look at young people and say, man, if I could be young again, oh, if I could have their knees, if, 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 I, if I could have their back, if I could have their strength, if I could have their vitality, if I could have their energy, right? My girls are nonstop. Boy, if I could have their energy. But... It's not just the resurrection, resurrection. Our resurrected bodies are not just going to be our bodies at their best. It's going to be something new, something different. Verse 44, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Then Paul says there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Notice that they are both bodies. Paul is speaking of two physical bodies, but each different. The body that dies is natural. It is animated by a human life and it is fitted for this world. Have you ever thought of the the interesting dynamics of living in this world and living this life? Things that God has baked into our bodies for the life that we live in today. The body with a heart that beats with lungs that breathe, capable of taking our air and parsing the oxygen and then using that oxygen to uh, strengthen our body and then allowing carbon monoxide to be the, the expulsion, which of course is used by the plants and the trees uh, in order to um, do their processes. And as we think about all of these concepts, we recognize that our bodies were truly retrofitted for this world, were they not? Our life is certainly superior to that of just base animals, but there is still a bestial quality to our bodies. Our bodies are fitted to survive. Our bodies get hungry to tell us that we need food, because if we don't eat food, then we will die. This life demands food, so we will get hungry because we need food. We get tired because if we, if we don't get rest, then our bodies can't function. So our eyelids get heavy, or we never wake up, right, Danielle? So that, a little inside joke there. But I won't cut it out of the sermon online, I promise. So we, our, our, our eyelids get heavy 
our minds shut down a little bit to tell us that we need to sleep. Because in this life, our bodies need rest. Our, Our bodies also face fear. And fear is a natural means by which we are protected, is it not? We fear certain animals, we fear certain heights, we fear certain things as the means by which for our body to tell us, you know, this is probably not good for your well-being. This is probably not something that is going to help you live a long and prosperous life. Fight or flight reflexes. We find contentment as we fulfill these needs. We find contentment as we eat, right? Right after Thanksgiving, if you haven't overstuffed yourself and you feel awful, you feel pretty good. You, you are content. You have filled your belly and you feel really good. We get tired. We rest. We wake up. We feel good if we got a good night's rest. But these are base pleasures. These are so meager compared to the glory and the fulfillment of what is to come. What if in the life to come we don't need food? What if we don't actually need oxygen? Will we have a heart? Will it be beating? Will we need lungs? Will we need to eat? The Bible hasn't told us. Paul didn't know. John didn't know. We don't know. So the glory of our resurrected body might be different in that it might not need certain things anymore. It might need other things. It might be capable of things that you and I could not even imagine. Did not Jesus in His resurrected body, His physical resurrected body, appear in the upper room? Through a locked door? What does that mean for us? I don't know. Does it mean something for us? I don't know. But what Paul is trying to say here is that the glory will be different. The spiritual body... See, the natural body needs all of these things retrofitted for us to live on this earth. The spiritual body, on the contrary, that we will one day receive is beyond our comprehension. It will still be flesh. might be different than our flesh, though. It won't be fitted for this world. It will be fitted for the heavenly world to come, for the new Jerusalem, for the new heaven, for the new earth. It will be fitted for a world without pain, without fear, without hunger. It will be fitted for that which God is creating. First John 3, 2, John tells us this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. I highlighted the phrase we're looking at here. John says it has not yet been told what we'll be. It has not yet been told what we'll look like or what we'll be able to do or what we'll need or what we won't. But what we do know is it won't be anything like our bodies today. Verse 45, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. What is written is only the first part of the phrase. It's from Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. This is the part that Paul is quoting. Only the first half of the verse is a quote. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. That is what was written. That is Genesis 2, 7, the very end. The second half of this verse is Paul filling in the gaps. The first one was made a living soul. Living a part of this earth, fitted for this earth, with a body for this earth, ready for this earth. The last Adam was made a quickening 
spirit. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was made a quickening spirit. When? Well, not when he was born the first time. That's when he was the living soul. When he was born, as you might say, the second time, when he was resurrected, when he was begotten of the Father. Acts 13.31 tells us he was begotten of the Father at his resurrection, right? So when he was begotten of the Father, he was made a quickening spirit. He was given a spiritual body. Jesus Christ was given a body fitted for the world to come and it's what we have to look forward to as well. Verse 47, So the first man is of the earth and, and therefore, because he is meant to live on this earth, the characteristics of his body are earthy. They're earthly characteristics. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He's from heaven and it will be fitted for heaven. I bring you back to Genesis 2.7 and I highlight not the end of the verse this time, but the beginning. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. We know that man was formed out of the same elements that we see in this world. If you were to throw man in a fire, what would come out is a bunch of ash. We're, we're, we're primarily carbon. That's what all living things are and, and we're a part of that as well. This is a basic building block of this earth, of this creation, of this universe. This is how God chose to make it. But the new heavens and the new earth are not constrained to God's design for this heaven and this earth, is it? We don't know what God will use. We don't know how it will look. And we don't know what our bodies will be like. God formed this body out of the same materials contained in the world. But the second man will not be of this earth. We won't be anymore simply ashes and dust. We won't anymore simply have feet of clay. Pastor, what does this mean? I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. We don't yet know what we shall be. It's kind of fun to think about though. Verse 48. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. We are of the earth because we are from the earth. The moment you were saved, you were made into a new creation, which is of heaven. So if you're a born-again believer in this room, your spirit is heavenly, though your body is still earthly. You are in an earthly temple. You still have the fears. You still have the hungers. You still have the needs. You still have a sin nature because you are in this body, but you also have a spiritual nature. Scriptures tell us, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. So you have received a portion of this already, not in the physical, but in the spiritual. And the body that we will receive one day, the spiritual but physical body, will conform itself to the needs of a existence that is spiritual. You are currently a heavenly creature in an earthly body, we might say, eagerly awaiting the day when your heavenly spirit can be placed into a body that was made to properly house it. It's kind of a fun thought, isn't it? You think of all of the joys and the blessings that it is to be a believer, to live out in this body the joys of serving the Lord and one day you are going to have a body that was actually made for your renewed spirit. You're going to have a body that is actually designed for 
the new creation that you have been made in Christ. It's going to be a good day. Certainly not something to dread. Definitely something to look forward to. So Paul says, and as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Someday, we will be like him. And that brings us back to 1 John 3, 2. We looked at an earlier phrase. Now let's look at that last phrase. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, what does he say? We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. When Christ returns, we will be resurrected. And we don't know what that's going to mean, but we know that we'll be like him. We know that we will bear the image of the heavenly in the same way that for the last X number of years of our lives, we've borne the image of the earthy. And just as Jesus has a heavenly body, so too shall we. However, Jesus does say, or Paul does say in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. And so it's very clear that it will not be the physical corrupted bodies that will inherit eternal life. It will be the uncorrupted bodies that will inherit eternal life. And as we close with these thoughts, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. They're questions we've asked several times over the course of these weeks, but it's an important question nonetheless. Do you have that heavenly nature? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins and thus been redeemed? The Bible says it's a matter of belief. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, we're sinners. We're in a corrupt body, but we are corrupt from the inside out. We are rebellious against God. Even our memory verse this morning, Isaiah 64.6, For we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have carried us away. We have all been drawn away by our own sin, by our own sin nature. We talked about that more last week. And so Jesus Christ was sent to be the second Adam, the last Adam, to undo in Himself what was done in the first Adam to do for us what we could not do ourselves, which is to make us righteous before God by saving us from our sins. Now, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior on the authority of God's Word, the Bible says there will be a second resurrection of the, of the dead for you as well. But it will be resurrected unto the great white throne of judgment where you will hear the words guilty and then cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And that is not a death, certainly that anyone in this room would like to bear, would like to experience. It's called the second death. Nor is it something that we would want anyone we know to experience. Much rather, the Scriptures tell us, blessed is he that takes part in the first resurrection, the resurrection unto life, where we will hear 
Jesus say those words that we long to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because we have accepted by faith that which He did for us on the cross. If you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, may I encourage you to get that taken care of today. Even there in the quietness of this moment in your seat, you can tell the Lord that you believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. You set aside anything else that you're trusting in to get yourself to heaven. Money can't get you there. Good works can't get you there. Getting baptized can't get you there. Church attendance can't get you there. And you accept exclusively that one thing that the Scriptures say must needs take place to be saved, which is to place your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, I don't fully understand. I need a little more help. Would you come see me after the service? And I'll open a Bible and I'll walk you through it. It'll take as long as we need until you understand. Before we who are saved, may I encourage you. The Scriptures have things to say about our resurrected bodies. We know from the Scriptures that we will recognize one another. We know that the disciples recognized Jesus in His resurrected body. We know that uh, it will be incorruptible, immortal, that there will not be death, that there will not be pain, that there will not be these struggles and, and that, that we experience in this life. We're, we're fine to think on those things, but may I encourage you with that which Paul encouraged the church, which is that we don't spend so much time wondering about what will be one day, that we forget what we need to be today. That we don't spend so much time thinking and studying and wondering about all that God has in store for us that we lose sight of the expectations to obey God and to love one another in and amongst ourselves today. And I'll leave you with that this morning. That by God's grace, we would be a church that knows sound doctrine and understands what is coming, recognizing our motivation for what we do today is recognizing all of the, the joys that, that follow and yet seeking first the kingdom of God today, knowing that we have work to do until the day that, that God calls us home. Let's pray together.